Hello everyone, this is Mark Vina with more insights and strategy. Today is Saturday, uh, May 4th. It's about a week after the IFA GPC um, press, con uh, press conference that uh, I attended last week in Spain. And uh, I've got a real treat today because I've got a couple of folks on the line today that were with me last weekend uh, for the call, for the meeting. And I think we all agree that it was really a fun meeting. A lot of interesting things came out of it. So let me introduce someone you already know, Rob Picaguero. Rob, please introduce yourself. Hey, hey everybody. I'm Rob Pegorero. I write for Yahoo Finance, USA Today, Wirecutter, and various other outlets. And I've got another uh, person who's new to the More Insights and Strategy podcast uh, uh, arena, and that is John Quain. Uh, John, introduce yourself. Hey, um, I write for the New York Times uh, quite a bit, and also I'm the Smart Cities columnist for Digital Trends, and I write for Tom's Guide and a number of other outlets. John, thanks for joining as well. So, you know, last weekend was a f was fun. I can't I can't believe it's already over uh, uh, a week past the uh, meeting. And, and for those of you right. who don't know, on the podcast, um, uh, IFA is an organization in Europe um, that uh, it's it's kind of a trade show organization that really promotes uh, consumer technology and smart home technology, anything that's really consumer related. And uh, what's unique about this organization is that they sponsor these fabulous events seemingly all over Europe. They move them to different places. And, of course, their big event is in Berlin where they have a, a traditional trade show, very much like uh, CES, although it seems bigger to me than CES because it's in one big massive area, exhi uh, exhibit area of Berlin. But, um, but before we jump into that, let me just uh, kind of um, tip my hat to Rob and ask him, Rob, uh, what did you see that was interesting last week? What, did you, what caught your eye? The thing that really jumped out at me was the presentation of a bunch of research findings, which I know might sound a little bit dry. These <laughs> findings were from uh, the uh, market research firm IHS Market, and they're about 8K TV sales. 8K for the uninitiated is like UHD 4K TV, but four times more so and therefore four times less practical. And what the IHS people found in their predictions of where the market was heading was that we're going to see a lot fewer of these sets moved than they had predicted. They, they estimated that only 18,600 were shipped worldwide last year. And for next year, I believe it was 138, sorry, this year, this year, 2019, 138,000 worldwide. Uh, and not much brighter for the years afterwards, which is considerably less than they had predicted last year or even a few years ago. And I think think that's probably good news maybe not for the ak vendors but for customers who are not buying something they don't need mm -hmm. rob are you implying that ak has oh. taken off is that my is that my takeaway <laughs> yeah. ak is you know uh I, I was trying to look for a number to compare these first year shipments to and uh -huh. people like to talk about the the poor old apple newton message pad the pioneering handheld organizer well apple uh -huh. sold fifty thousand of those in the first four months that really puts things in perspective. <laughs> yes. When you take that out of your yeah. back pocket. Well, but it's not surprising, right, John? I mean, let's face it. There's no, there's very little AK content, if any. The broad, in the U.S., especially in the U.S., the, you know, the broadcasters have not upgraded their infrastructure to support AK. They haven't gotten the 4K yet, let alone AK. Um, and uh, to me, the whole thing is about content. You know, if the content is not, not there... You know, AK shows off better on much larger TV um, formats, you know, 75-inch and larger. And, you know, the, the mass part of the market is not at 75-inch. I think that's a pretty uh, easy statement to make. Uh, and the other thing I think that's uh, interesting, 
Uh, well, maybe not so interesting is that the prices of, of 4K TVs have come down dramatically. You know, companies like um, uh, TCL, which has done an enormous job, they've come out of almost nowhere in the last three years to really drive a lot of market share on a worldwide basis. In fact, they were at IFA and they made that point several times. But just you know, there's just you can get a great 4K TV for you know well under 1,500 bucks, depending on what size you um, you want. But John, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think all that's true, but also I think there's another lesson to be learned. It's just how good does it really look? And it comes back to, you know, 3D TVs. 3D TVs <laughs> always look terrible. They right. look terrible. It didn't matter how much they pushed them or what resolution they tried to get it, because it cut the resolution of the TV set, it always looked bad. And it didn't look like real life, like 3D. And they've got the same issue with 8K. Does it look better than 4K? It's a little, little bit sharper. Not very much sharper than 4K, um, you know, with uh, high dynamic range. But there are other issues involved that they're discovering to make it look more realistic. It's going to take more than just resolution. It takes a number of other factors, and they're not there yet in terms of making that TV look like real life. So I think that's really, you know, the struggling point is like people look at it and go, uh, I'm not seeing much of a difference, you know, and that's yep. that's really the problem. Don't tell me we're going to have to add uh, Smell-O-Vision to the AK set to really close the deal. There are some interesting <laughs> issues, you know, it starts to get into the physics of it. It's really kind of cool, but, I, you know, it's going to be a while until we see a TV that looks like real life. That's right. going to be a bit. Right. Well, and you know, again, I just go back to the, the, the practical matter of affordability. And, you know, even if the content was there, you know, AK TVs are still, you know, quite expensive. You know, it's a big investment. Now, yeah. interesting, what the point you've pointed out, Rob, is that the China market apparently show, um, if you believe the research, seems to be an interesting market for AK TVs. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I talked to a couple of the IHS analysts who put these numbers together, Maria Rua Aguete and uh, Paul Gray. And their take on China was... It's a little more suited for conspicuous consumption because people don't live in huge huge homes. Car ownership isn't as high. Mm -hmm. So the, the TV you have in your living room is one way to show off, like, here's what we got. Here's here's how we've made it. The other point uh, Paul made to me was if you actually look at what makes money in the Chinese market, basically small sets nobody can make any money on. They've gotten too good right. at fabricating these mm -hmm. glass panels at scale. Right. And so they're, they're sort of being pushed uphill, not necessarily by consumer demand, but just by how are we going to make any money at this. Mm -hmm. And once you do get into these larger sizes, like 75 inches and up, you might actually see those extra pixels of an 8K set from the couch. Whereas right. 4K, you'll, you'll see 46-inch 4K sets, and you're not going to see those. Not unless you're, right. you put a still image on there and everyone walks up close to inspect it. Like the demo I love seeing at CES and at IFA, for that matter, is... People showing off how great their 4K set is by half of the screen is showing at 4K resolution like box scores in a newspaper or stock tables, and the other half mm -hmm. is showing them in 8K. Right. That's not really, you know, relatable content that most right. people watch. Right, right. I mean, it'll, you know, I think the net net is that 8K will happen, but the will part is going to take a lot of time before it gets there. And, uh, I think that the horizon t to get to really big mainstream volumes, uh, you know, volumes that really start to compete, you know, dramatically with 4K, it's going to be another three or four years, you know, which, believe it or not, in the technology industry, that's, that's, a, that's a long period of time, frankly, for, uh, because people like, they look for light switches, they want things to happen right away when, 
you know, when you're talking about the price points, it's 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 a it's a hard sell for all the issues you guys have pointed out. But but I think the big news that I was interested in, and and John, I'm sure you have lots of opinions on this, is the announcement <laughs> is, is the announcement at IFA that. Um, uh, Richard Yu, who is the CEO of Huawei, and Cristiano uh, Aman, who is the president of Qualcomm, are going to keynote uh, the IFA Berlin event uh, in uh, September. And uh, I think I think you could charitably say those are interesting bedfellows for a um, <laughs> you know, for, for, for a meeting like this for all, for different reasons. Yeah. But uh, but John, what 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 are your thoughts on on, on that announcement? Well, the, the background, of course, to this is 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 for people listening is. In case they've forgotten is 5G, right? The move to 5G and wireless networks and bringing what essentially would be in a high-speed um, broadband internet access, super high-speed to wireless networks. Um, and those are the two principal c- companies behind some of the chips and um, note routers and, and you know and handsets that are going to make that happen. Uh, a little bit of history, of course, is that Qualcomm tried to merge with NXP and um, was approved sort of across the board uh, in eight different countries, and China was the last one, and they indicated to the Trump administration that they would approve it, and then at the last minute, sucker punched them and said no, and the deal fell through. <laughs> Um, it, it actually made it very difficult for Qualcomm and NXP that are both looking at the autonomous vehicle market and they kind of need each other to really work in that market. Um, mm-hmm. So that really upset people at Qualcomm. I can't tell you how angry those people still are about that yes, and yes. at NXP. So mm-hmm. they're going to be there, and then they're looking at, of course, Huawei, which is, you know, is is bound by Chinese regulations and laws, and that's, um, you know, they've been accused of a lot of different things in terms of maybe spying and uh, espionage and eco espionage, and are the Chinese government accessing certain nodes, et cetera, that their equipment is on. Um, that's never been really shown. But it's true that the company, being a Chinese company, is bound by the rules of the government. And one of those rules is if they want access to those networks, they can get access to that equipment. Mm-hmm. And that has made a lot of governments around the world pretty nervous. Australia has banned them, for example. You can't, their 5G networks won't have any Huawei equipment on it. But now the company is like struggling to stay in the market. It's looking at things thinking, gee, I could be blocked out of a lot of markets in 5G, which is the future. And so it's really interesting to see him going right at us, the media, and saying, come on, you know, this, is, this isn't fair and we should be part of this too. Right. Rob, what's your perspective? I, 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 my guess would be is that you agree with a lot of the things that uh, Sir John is articulating. <laughs> yeah, Huawei's a weird case because, you know, the, the situational grounds for being suspicious Exactly. You know, it's the People's Republic of China. You know, if you go to China, you, you'd better lock down your devices. You're going to have to use a VPN for everything. There's a whole yeah. situational dread, I guess. But on the other hand, no one's been able to actually say, like, here's a back door. I mean, like, so Business Week had a story right after we got back from uh, EVA GPC, uh, a bunch of back doors. And then a lot of security experts said, actually, what you're talking about is a routine diagnostic feature. Yeah, that was, that was in this the, situation. That was yeah, and it was especially problematic. I hate to dunk on another media outlet, but Bloomberg Businessweek had that yes. cover story about spy chips. Yep, in all these servers, which yielded 
very quick and on the record denials from Amazon and Apple and those companies never speak on the record. Right. And Business Week has never said like really what they know that these companies who would really be in a position to know don't. And it's I feel very strange taking the side of a giant tech company against a journalistic publication, but something's weird and a lot of people, you know, whose opinions I trust in mm-hmm. cybersecurity don't think business we got that story and they're a little doubtful about this one. Right. So yeah. it's just hard no, to tell. Yeah, yeah I, I, Microsoft and those companies have denied many cases, things that, you know, for years. And then it turned out, oh, we did actually work with the government on that virus. So I not, you know, they did, their trustworthiness is kind of questionable, too. It's yeah, but you know, to the, say. You yeah, know. but you know, the thing I throw into that is that the technical sophistication at the ASIC level, for, you know, technologies like this are so complex that... You can get, you know, I hate to say this, but, you know, two things probably can be true. You could probably get experts who could say, oh, you know what, you know, based in that, in that, that embedded technology, there are backdoors that, a, that a, a Huawei could get access to. But then you could probably get technology experts who could say, hey, by the way, that's routine uh, kind of stuff. And, you know, it's not really backdoors. It's, it's for, you know, very, um, you know, a standard or, or traditional um, technology practices. So... I think, John, you have a point, but uh, but the one, the one thing that's certain, and I think Rob is right about this, is how the you know the press and Bloomberg, by the way, we're not talking about a um, a high school newspaper. Right. I mean, Bl- Bloomberg right. is a fairly. <laughs> I mean, they're one of the blue chip um, news outlets that's that's out, that's still out there, frankly. So it's still out there. Yeah, <laughs> you know? and and that and that diagnostic issue too. Look, um, that's how the um, FCA vehicles were all hacked. Um, they were hacked through supposedly a diagnostic uh, backdoor into mm-hmm. one of the chips on the head units of those systems. So, it, you know, if you if you came to me and said, "Hey, I see a backdoor," my first reaction as a technology as a software writer would be, "Oh, it's a diagnostic tool." <laughs> I mean, right. that, would, that would be the very first thing I would say to cover it up. So, I don't, you know, <laughs> is it true or not? I don't know. Well, but, think but you know, what, but you know what. Go ahead, uh, Rob. That's been made against Huawei. Uh, the UK government set up a whole cybersecurity research center. I guess Huawei agreed to that because they want to be able to sell their network gear, and they came out with this report a few weeks ago, which said basically, you know, no, there's no, we haven't seen any evidence of, you know, a, a direct line back to Beijing, but lots of bad coding practices, bad security practices, uh, you know, not use of a consistent software build materials, things that in essence. I have to admit I haven't finished reading the report because it's really long. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Said it's going to be hard to assess the security of some of these uh, components, right. just because it's never quite clear that you're going to get the same thing across all these. Right. Right. But and, you, I, I, and any if you look at any company, I think any tech company that hard and critically, you'd probably come out with the same sorts of things. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm testing equipment today, and let me tell you. None of these things are working very well on testing today. So, <laughs> so you know, if you look at them under the microscope, to be fair to Huawei, hey, I think you'd see that from any company. So, uh, tricky situation. Well, well, but, you know, you you look at the just the perception of security concerns. And, you know, something that happened over the last uh, two weeks or so was, you know, Qualcomm and, um, and uh, Apple kiss it made up. You know, on the eve of the of their big big patent trial that everybody was kind of waiting to, um, uh, you know, waiting to roll. And I think it's fair to say that you know Qualcomm, you know, 
you know, prevailed in that situation. And, you know, without going into that in detail, that could be a separate podcast. I have to believe right. that, that, you know, there, if you're, a, if you're a, a phone manufacturer like an Apple, you don't have many choices for 5G, for 5G infrastructure. Right. And, you know, they, they, I guess they had a path with Intel, but there were some concerns about that. The other path beyond Qualcomm was Huawei, and I think I really do believe that there was this um, perception, may not be true, but I believe there was a perception at Apple that, hey, you know, how could we put a Huawei 5G technology in our product and, 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 and enhance that, that, that skepticism that, hey, there might be a backdoor, you know, China could be listening in on my phone calls if I have a new iPhone 12 with 5G. So that may have been right. a fact, who knows, that may have been a factor. But uh, the other thing I think that was interesting and I want to talk about this for a couple of minutes, is the, um, that trust presentation that uh, was given yes. uh, during EFA. I yep. thought that was one of the better presentations I've heard. It was, uh, it was done by um, Margot Edelman, who I believe is the granddaughter, if I'm not mistaken. I may be getting that wrong. But I believe she's the, the granddaughter of the, uh, the founder of Edelman. And for those of you who don't know in the audience, Edelman is... Um, one of the premier PR agencies in the world. They've been around forever, and you know they've had really, really big, you know, Fortune 50 technology clients. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So, you know, what struck you about that presentation, Rob? Yeah. So, this very comprehensive survey Edelman does every year, 26 countries, and the big thing was that this gap between the opinion of what you could call, I guess the people, for lack of a better phrase, the people who go to events like the EVA GPC, people who read a bunch <laughs> of places, are doing reasonably well, they're educated, they're pretty confident in institutions in general. And among everyone else, it's lower. Uh, and I pay particular attention to their findings about media, which in the survey is not defined just as the places where John and I write and where you're quoted, but news sites, search, and social media. And so the overall media number was, you know, not bad. It would have been much better if it weren't for social media, which had about the trust rating for that was in the 30s in the United States. And that's before a lot of the bad news we've seen come out about Facebook. This this, uh, this was done in November, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> which, which <laughs> by the way, is next it, year's findings. That's exactly right. A lot of things have happened since November. So you have to look at the results and, you know, in, with that context. But the information was fascinating. I mean, in terms of, you know, the, the uh, well, I mean, what I really liked, the way the, the data was kind of segmented between informed respondents and non-informed respondents. And a lot of that's based on demographics and, you know, education and income. And you, you got to get be a bit careful about that because, because, you know, my view is just because you're educated and make a lot of money does not mean you're necessarily more informed than, nope. than, than the uh, you know, in fact, I think three of us could probably test, uh, attest to the fact that that's probably not true in some cases. But, uh, John, what, did, what was your take on, on the, that presentation? I mean, it was interesting to see that all grouped together, too, as Rob just pointed out. You know, to have Instagram grouped together with the New York Times. I'm not sure that's probably the way to, to survey some of this. But, you know, in, in another sense, though, maybe that's the way that people sort of consume um, information now. And so they, they have trouble, may, you know, uh, sorting thing, one thing out from another. And that maybe that's just a reflection of that. But one thing I found was interesting was some odd contradictions. So um, it showed, you know... Uh, 
women were very distrustful of uh, some of the social media and very skeptical of what they saw on social media. On the other hand, they were the ones that passed along the most amount of information, you know, news stories, and shared as m more than anybody else on social media. So it seemed like this, you know, cognitive dissonance of, I don't trust it, but I'm on it all the time. You know, right, <laughs> just, right. it was right. very interesting. And maybe again, that's just a reflection of where we're at as a society right now. I, I don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think you have to look at the data because one of the, the, the takeaways was, you know, that the pop, the general population, both informed, both informed and non-informed um, respondents um, you know, trust technology company. Uh, well, I'm sorry, they trust technology, but that has to right. be bifurcated with, you know, I think they trust technology for the potential of what technology does. You know, allows you to do, th you know, you can have the world of information in your pocket on a smartphone, which is remarkable when you look, you know, you just flash back 15 or 20 years. You know, it, it, entertainment, you know, the whole world has changed because of smartphone devices and the internet in general. But if you move that argument to you trust Facebook, or other social media companies, as an example, you know, trust level plummets pretty dramatically. So you got to kind of bifurcate uh, both things. Yeah, the quote right. I wrote down was where, where Margot Margo Edelman was talking about trust in different subsectors of text. Mm -hmm. Text. Tech. Not my <laughs> <laughs> uh, It's, it's you know, Saturday, Rob. It's Saturday. Exactly. So health tech, that's a 74% trust rating. Autonomous vehicles, 54 uh, as you said, you trust the iPhone in your pocket. You don't necessarily trust blockchain, which, you right. know, not a crazy take on it, given how vaporous <laughs> a lot of blockchain technology is. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, that's, you know, and I, yeah. Go ahead, Sorry, no, go go ahead. John. No, you, John, go ahead. Uh, oh, I, well, I was just going to point out, too, as Rob pointed out, um, you know, this survey was done back in November, and it does – things change very rapidly. And I think of Boeing, I think, uh, you know, if, if that had happened, if those crashes had happened due to, you know, design and software errors, would people have been responded so trustworthy, you know, trusting of technology? I don't know. Um, although they may not associate it with the kinds of, you know, media and Apple and companies like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it, but it was definitely an interesting study. And, uh, I think it was wise of the uh, the IFA folks to include that presentation because, like you said, I mean, you know, generally data presentations, and it was a very data oriented pre presentation. It was a, it was smartly done in a very understandable format. But I think the three of us have seen presentations like that that sometimes you fall asleep. But it was one of the better. It was probably one of the best presentations I've ever seen um, at a um, a press council and uh, press conference. And I should uh, I think Margot and Edelman should be applauded for that. The last thing I want to talk about is, you know, three or four of the companies that showed up. You know, the, the one of the things at the EF events, especially at these uh, GPC events, is that you have um, uh, interesting startup and non-startup companies that show up to show off their wares. And it's not; it's certainly not as big as EFA because uh, Berlin, because Berlin's a, a humongous trade show. But there were a few standouts, and uh, you know, one play, one vendor I do want to talk about is um, Rob's. You know, Rob was on a mission when he went to. Um, Spain to find the ultimate smart oven, and he thought he discovered it. And, uh, <laughs> so let, let's talk about that kind of that that, dem that demo we had with Hire. Yes. Yeah, um, so this oven, you could also think of it as a fridge. You know, work with me here, folks. So, so somebody <laughs> decided to solve the problem that maybe doesn't actually exist. Of, you know, what if you want to keep food, you know, available to eat, but not keep it cold, but keep it warm. So this particular oven from Hire, which is a uh, 
Chinese company that now owns a bunch of European companies and have licensed a lot of consumer electronic appliance brands is designed to use this keep heat feature to keep what's in the oven in like a sealed packet as if you were going to cook it sous vide style at 63 degrees centigrade or 145 degrees Fahrenheit for up to two weeks. And the concept as the presenter explained this to uh, me and Mark was, you know, you, you would cook a bunch of stuff on a Sunday and then just keep it in, in the oven mm-hmm. and as if it were a fridge, take one out, take it out of the packet and eat it, which I get the technological innovation. That's kind of nifty. That's good. They say it uses very little electricity. The presenter described it as what you would pay for a cup of coffee in Italy, which apparently is not what you'd pay in the United States because you said that would be about one euro, not like $5. (laughs) But your take was this would be a good second oven, but not your only one. Yeah, that was hard. You know, again, I mean, and I'm not the right target market for it because I'm single and I have my own kitchen and my microwave is my favorite um, smart device, so to speak. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that if you have a large enough kitchen, and you know, some people have room, for, and I, and that's not unheard of, by the way. Many families do have second ovens, but I, I, I think it's a, from a usage model standpoint, it's interesting. But to me, it's, it can't be your primary oven. I just I didn't see it that way. You know. Um, yeah, that's an odd, an odd thing. I mean, I, I have. In my home here, I'm sitting in Vermont. I do have two ovens, uh, but you know they're far apart. I'd forget something was in the other oven. It would be like six months later. Be, oh, did I leave something? In that? <laughs> well, it's okay. Eventually, this this key peat thing will turn whatever you put into it into beef jerky. So you're still good. Yeah, but but, but speaking <laughs> of but speaking of multiple ovens and the risk uh, of a fire in your kitchen. Um, right. There was an interesting um, uh, device being shown. It's been out there for some t- a bit of time. Uh, a company called Sofera that has a um, a smart thermostat that you attach to your um, cooking hood, and uh, I-, I was intrigued with that. I thought that was the kind of piece of technology that really could have a pretty immediate impact on safety um, in the uh, in the uh, in the kitchen with with uh, kitchen fires and a few other things. I think that would be a productive uh, usefulness for. Um, the consumer, but what were your thoughts on the Safira uh, demo, John? Oh, I loved it. Uh, you know that it's actually one of the things I like about uh, EFER IFA, which is the the you know the global international feel of it. Um, because you're right that this device is available in Scandinavia and has been under different brands for some time, but I've never seen anything like it before because we don't have anything like it in in North mm-hmm. America. Um, and I, 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 it's one of those subtle technologies that I. It just brought together existing technologies. It has about 10 sensors in it. It's in the size of a candy bar. Uh, it's about $150. Comes it, mon- out it, monitor- it monitors gas emission, which I thought right. was, you know. It does infrared. It does um, park particulates in the air. So it's looking for air pollution. It's looking for temperature, just heat. Um, it's got a microphone. If your water starts to boil, it can hear it boiling. Um, and it, it can even tell when a pan is ready to cook something in it. You know, if you're used to setting a cast iron pan up and, and waiting for it to heat up. So all of that, I thought, was is not just the safety factor of detecting when something might be a fire occurring, but also these convenience features. And it's uh, it could be really handy. And it's just a sort of an everyday kind of device that would make things easier in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of it kind of strikes you as a, like, why didn't they figure something like this out before? And like you said, it's been available in Europe 
um, uh, for some time. And <laughs> I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe the appliance makers in the United States don't feel that fire is a big issue in the kitchen yet. Apparently, uh, what was the stat they threw out, John? 500 people ah. die? I think it was five. I don't know. That was, that was the number I thought I heard. Five hundred people die in kitchen fires. Do they have a source for that? Is this a citation needed situation? Uh, I would think one is too many. Rob Pegagero research, I think, was the was, was the source. <laughs> I would think it's higher, but certainly you know something in the order of fifty percent of fires in homes start in the kitchen. kitchen right. this, that's 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 not surprising, I think, to most people. Uh, but uh, it, it just it was one of those little things that you know it's like the owl. Do you know the owl cam that goes into cars? Those guys yes. have designed it, again. You know, not revolutionary technology, but it throws everything together in a nice little package, and then solves a problem. Um, you know, a security in the car and monitoring that it, you know is nicely done. The same situation with this, I thought, was a interesting application. We'll see whether people understand it. You know, it's a little. A little tricky to explain, but I, I liked it. The yeah, feature we, to watch for, because I think uh, JQ, you brought this out of them. Apparently, this is getting built into some appliances over there. Yes. And once it's built into a stove, like the vent hood or whatever, or you pay for this add-on that'll let it control the stove, it can also shut off the burner for you, and it becomes not just this little monitor, but I guess you're sort of little R two D two in the kitchen to be your uh, cooking co-pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, def- definitely. Um, it would also stir risotto for me. That would be great. Well, that's the <laughs> tricky. That's the tricky thing. I've tried the sous vide. I've tested a bunch of sous vide things yeah. too because we're technology people, and it still doesn't do risotto the way you know as well as if you stood there and stirred it. Yeah, yeah, the only I, easy I, way I to do otherwise that. is instant pot. Uh, no, I have guests over and make them stir it. <laughs> Better, yes. <laughs> Well, this conversation is quickly uh, devolving. So, uh, so, but hey, let, 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 let me just say uh, before we get off, we've got a, about a minute left or so here. Is that I want to thank the um, EFA organization for a fabulous event. I think both you guys would agree that uh, you know, EFA does a very nice. The EFA team does a very nice job, not just with different venues, but their professionalism and just the way the events are, condu- are conducted are certainly the best that I've seen. And I've been to many, many events in the United States and around the world, and they seem to do a terrific job. Wouldn't you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I also think this is going to be, as we pointed out at the top, one of the most newsworthy, you know, interesting IFA, IFA events in September in Berlin. Right. Yeah, Berlin. Yeah. In a long time. So I think people are going to be really uh, interested in this show. Right. Yep. I sure will. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to see both of you guys I know in Berlin in September for the uh, the big EFA event, the mother of all EFA yeah. events, the big exhibit <laughs> event. And uh, but guys, thank you for calling in on a uh, Saturday morning. I know Rob, you've got many pressing things to go off and do. <laughs> and uh, John, I know you're in Vermont, and I guess yep. you're looking for maple syrup. So good luck with that for the rest <laughs> of the afternoon. But anyway, thanks to everyone for listening in on today's call. Uh, please follow more insights and strategy on our social media partners linkedin uh, facebook and twitter and until next weekend uh, until next week uh, have a great weekend